Hello, Hello horror fanatics. I'm Frank. And I'm Jen. And we welcome you to our weekly podcast. <laughs> oh. Oh, oh, the horror. horror. Thank you for joining us as we dive deep into all things horror, supernatural, scary, and downright creepy. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe to add us to your regular rotation of podcasts. You can also submit any ideas, comments, and suggestions to oth at seriouslydecent.com. And you can also get more information on our podcast at ohthehorrorpodcast.com. So, Frank. Yeah. How you been? I've been fantastic. Really? Yes. Nice. Glad to hear it. Yep. You know what my favorite part of all of this is? All of all of what? The research and the upcoming mm. episode? Yeah. I didn't once dive into... The Encyclopedia of Demons and, and Demonology. Demonology by Rosemary Ellen Guiley. And no offense to Rosemary. No, it's a very good book, Rosemary. Yeah. However, but you had a you had a rough uh, three weeks or so with that. Uh, I spent way too much. Actually, time. almost about four weeks total. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm intimately acquainted with yeah, the book. Yeah. So I I got that going for me. Yeah, yeah. We have a um, we have a good topic today. Yeah. A, uh, I think it's a nice end cap for our demons. Everything that we've done. To, up till now. Up till now, yeah. Yeah. That's a good point because we're going to branch different out of here, which we'll yes. reveal at the end of the episode, as we always do. However, today, who do we have? We have Ed and Lorraine Warren. Yeah. Come on down. <laughs> You're the next contestant on Oh the Horror. True, true. True story. Yes. However, we have to put a disclaimer out. We do. For the major, if you are the uh, major Ed and Lorraine Warren fans, and if you think that that friendly little couple on The Conjuring... Are the greatest things since sliced bread. It's the core of that yeah. uh, that duo. Uh, you've been adequately warned. We're going to be talking about some other things, other topics, yeah. other incidences. Yeah, we kind of go in a lot of different directions well as we do with a lot of this stuff well yeah but and i think justifiably so well yeah i think it'd be dishonest not to bring it up i will say for a precursor we're not deciding on anything no. we're not making any decisions no. here but we're gonna talk about these two well we gotta the good the bad the ugly the good the bad the ugly mm -hmm. some pimples warts mm -hmm. and whatnot yeah so oh so many whatnots yeah so you're going to start with uh, basically the early beginnings of Lorraine. And I'm actually going to start with, as we always do, the quote unquote oh, definition. Yeah, the definition. We do that with people too. We do. And they were paranormal investigators. A lot of sources said they were demonologists, but I don't think that's accurate. Ed was a demonologist. Correct. correct. Lorraine was a clairvoyant. And I should say I referenced the demonologist, the extraordinary career of Ed and Lorraine Warren by Gerald Brittle, pretty much exclusively. Yeah, that was a big pull from this book. I, uh, yeah. I pulled from there and uh, some websites here and there. I'll, I'll yeah. bring them up as I go and through. And toward the end, I relied heavily on an article from The Hollywood Reporter because, you yeah. know, 
that's where you get your news. That's where you get your news, a nice Hollywood rag. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. At, like I said, Ed's the demonologist. Lorraine is a, is was a clairvoyant. They were a husband and wife and high school sweethearts. High school sweethearts, yeah. It's the story everyone likes. Right. Yeah. I then have their dates of birth. Mm-hmm. Um, they were both born in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Ed was born September 7th, 1926, and Lorraine Rita Moran was born January 31st, 1927. Mm-hmm. So would you like to start with Ed? I'll kick off with Ed. Ed is no longer with us. He died at age 79 on August 23rd, 2006 in Monroe, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. But uh, he grew up in a house that he believed was haunted, and he recalled doors opening on their own, strange lights would form in the house, he claimed uh, he saw an apparition, basically a dot of light that grew and formed into uh, his family's landlady. She died the year before this uh, incident occurred. Mm-hmm. He also recalled that she was semi-transparent, wearing what looked like some sort of shroud, and then she vanished. He would also have dreams of dead relatives he never met. He would uh, have dreams of an aunt who would send him messages about his uh, future, telling him that he would help many priests, but never become a priest himself. Mm -hmm. Which if he told this story at the end, or near the end of his life, it ultimately became true. Because he was never a priest. True. But he would help priests. He worked uh, hand in hand with priests. Yeah, he helped them. And of several faiths. Mm Mm-hmm. His occupation was a paranormal investigator, painter, author, self-taught, and self-professed demonologist, which was ultimately his uh, claim to fame. So what about the uh, early beginnings of Lorraine? Well, Lorraine, too, has passed away. She passed on April 18th, 2019. She was 92 in Monroe, Connecticut. And Lorraine grew up three blocks away from Ed. To a fairly affluent Irish family, she attended Laurelton Hall, a Catholic girls' school in Milford, Connecticut. And at 12, while in school, Lorraine discovered her gift. Her entire class was outside for an Arbor Day celebration, and they were planting a sapling. As it was set in the ground, Lorraine was staring at the sky, seeing the tree in its full-grown splendor, and she also told the nun that her light's aura was brighter than the mother superiors. The nuns considered her psychic ability sinful and packed her off to a weekend retreat of prayer and silence. Because, mm. you know, nothing helps get rid of a psychic gift like some prayer and silence. Yeah, yeah. So, so when did this lovely couple meet? So at this point... Ed and Lorraine both lived in Connecticut, and they met initially in 1944. They were both 16 years old. Ed worked as an usher at a movie theater that Lorraine and her mother frequented. They began dating, and soon after, Ed enlisted in the Navy and went off to fight in World War II. Funny story. Lorraine knew right away that they would spend the rest of their lives together, and he was the only boy she ever dated. Really? Yeah. That's so sweet. Right? Yeah. Yeah. They do have that sweet appeal to him. Mm -hmm. In 1945, he was deployed for four months and was sent home on a 30-day survivor's leave. His ship went down in the North Atlantic Sea, 
and the ship collided with an oil tanker and a fire erupted. The crew had to jump overboard. Returning home after that uh, experience, he asked Lorraine to marry him, and then he returned to the war, and then they later had their daughter, their daughter, (laughs) Judy Warren. Yes. And at this point, the Warrens had to figure out how to make a living after the war. This is after he's come back home. Yeah. I have the date of their marriage as May 22nd, 1945. That's correct. I did. uh, I somehow omitted that. And they were both 18. 18. And Judy was six months old um, when Ed left the Navy, returned home. And that was the first time he saw her. It's young. Yeah. It's really young. Yep. So then now they're trying to figure out how to make a living after the war. Both of them each had skills as landscaped artists. And they began their marriage under the assumption that they would be artists. They didn't mm-hmm. have this vision yet of no. getting into paranormal uh, investigating investigating or anything like that. And they would basically, Ed would find haunted houses in the newspaper. That's how I read this. And that was a little odd to me because I don't know how you find haunted houses in the newspaper. It's not like something they, they advertise much. Well, according to the book... They just drove around and they would do a sketch of a house in the grounds. Well, yeah. And that was the interesting part is reading that from the book as well. I did read that. Mm-hmm. that they would go to houses, they'd sketch them, knock on the door, offer the sketch for information about the haunting. And Lorraine said if the story was compelling enough, they'd actually paint the house and sell that artwork later. In an art show. Yeah. And then they'd spend, they basically spent about five years going around the United States painting and investigating haunted houses. Mm-hmm. They were both members of the Roman Catholic Church. The Warrens held that basically d- demonic forces are likely to possess those who lack faith. That yeah. was basically their, their, their parallels with their faith and all this. Mm-hmm. And they would also work with the Catholic Church on exorcisms. They authored many books about the paranormal and their private investigations into various reports of paranormal activity Mm -hmm. and what i found interesting in this whole thing is that lorraine actually leaned to be more skeptic early on yeah and that i was a bit surprised by yeah with as forceful as she was later on yeah initially she had no experience with ghosts or hauntings and was very skeptical she kind of was you know, a little hesitant, wary, and concerned that the people they were speaking with just had active imaginations or were making it all up to get attention, Mm -hmm. which I think is kind of kettle. Well, no, but I think there's a degree of honesty in that bit. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's how I've been for a long time. You know, as we were reading this, I was like, oh, my God, Frank is Lorraine and I'm Ed. Like, I'm the one that's all in. You're the skeptic, so yeah, does that then, mean you're going to fall in? Well, no, I mean, a <laughs> bit by, no, but bit by yes. bit through, I have fallen in. Ergo, the podcast, you know, <laughs> I, I think it's pretty blatantly obvious at this point. What I found similar and, and in parallel is that she started noticing similarities between the experiences, including from people who had never met and who were also from opposite sides of the country Yeah, because they're traveling around. Yep. And I think... That's pretty significant at that time period because you didn't have the internet. No. Even news. They didn't have the 24-hour no. national news. No. They had the 6 o'clock news. And then they and had that's a, the news at 11. Yeah, but that was local news. Yep. 
and then you would have your your local news and there might be like one or two topics that were like a nation story mm-hmm. but it wasn't like the news today where it's basically the op- opposite where right you get you know, all of the national you would get stuff. all the national stuff for probably 80% of the slot or mm-hmm. whatever time period or spot that they're going and and like i said they didn't even have 24 hour news right so they found this on the road and that had to be significant if you were a skeptic yeah and that's where i look at it from my perspective is you're going to go and talk to this family in Connecticut and then you're going to hop in the car and travel around. And now in like New York, you're going to hear a story and in Ohio, you're going to hear a story and you're traveling around and all of a sudden these are similar in the respect. And uh, granted there's a lot of ghost stories and books and stuff yeah, like that. I mean like, here's my, here's my thing with that. She's the clairvoyant. So she's the one that's supposed to have this, Yeah, you know, her finger on the pulse of the ghost. Yeah. So she's supposedly making contact with these ghosts, which once that happens once, wouldn't you be like, oh, all right. Which apparently was when she was a small child. You know, right now I get the whole thing that maybe, you know, she thought everybody acted like that, but as you're, now 18, 20, 25. Right. Roaming around. And you're you walking know. through a house and all of a sudden yeah. this guy's like, hey, my name's Bob. I used to live here. Yeah. Let me tell you my story. Yeah. No, and that's that's where I kind of found some things that were yeah. interested on that. So in an investigation, Ed conducts an interview and it's an in-depth interview with the family. And at this point, this frees up Lorraine so that she gets a chance to walk through the house alone and see what she can see or feel. And then she would later share her impressions with Ed and that would help further the investigation. They yeah. could either say, you know, yeah, this is, this isn't what we thought or mm-hmm. yeah, you know, there's something, uh, uh, there's a little bit more going on here yeah. than, than we thought. And the warrants deciphered the differences between ghosts, which are a, passive entity with limited powers and abilities and the worst cases they came across could not be attributed to a ghost because they were finding the whole house was ruined in a deliberate way people in the home were attacked either mentally or physically or both Disturbances begin at sunset and end at sunrise. And unlike unlike ghosts who are white, these were devoid of light. And everything associated with this type of spirit was negative. It intensified in an atmosphere of fear. Its arrival was accompanied by a sense of utter terror and foreboding with an undeniable sense of evil and a wild animosity filled the room. And there was a foul, revolting stench, similar to sulfur, excrement, or rotting flesh, which isn't that pleasant. Yeah, It often left residue of blood and or bodily fluids. It projected hate and destructive jealousy. And every action was cruel, violent, and tense, Like, mm-hmm. but directed. And it played dirty. It used foul language and caused injury. And that's when they discovered or deciphered that these entities or this this type of haunting was demonic. Yeah, yeah. 
So, I mean, yeah, I get it. That is pretty freaking intense. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, there's there's no feel goods. No, no. <laughs> it's, uh, well, and what's interesting is uh, they start doing this for a while. Mm-hmm. They're doing this for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. In the interim of that, they developed this organization. It's the New England Society for Psychic Research. I call it Nesper. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a part of it, but it's, and the right. ac- everything has to have an acronym. It's N-E-S-P-R. And it's basically the whole, uh, the oldest ghost hunting group in New England. And it was founded in 1952 by the Warrens. Sounds about right. So they have this group, they form up Yep. 20 years of work and traveling and they receive media attention in a couple areas that really kind of got them propped up and boosted up. Mm-hmm. One was, at their hometown in Bridgeport, Connecticut in 1974, Mary Pascarella contacted them and informed the Warrens of some paranormal activity at this uh, local Bridgeport residence, Jerry and Laura Go- uh, Gooden. They were experiencing some activity, and the news got out about the poltergeist affecting the house mm-hmm. on Lindley Street, and crowds began to form outside the house. And this was the first case where the Warrens experienced a large media presence as they tried to conduct their work. Right. And then you have a um, another one. I have a very extensive case mm-hmm. that essentially encompasses our last four or five episodes. This case is poltergeist activity, demons, demonology, Ouija board. This and, has it all. And this brought them to fame as well. I don't know. Oh, okay. I well, just that's where know I was... that this is very well documented in the book, mm-hmm. and there are pictures, and I'm going to share the pictures from the book on our Facebook page, okay. before, on the group page. Before we get to that, I'll wrap up okay. what I have here. And, you know, so basically after this large media presence, they start appearing on Merv Griffin's show, mainstream media picks them up, and they start moving, and... This is where they start making their living. They're giving lectures at colleges. At this time, around in the 60s, the occult and mm-hmm. paranormal are becoming very, very famous and oh, yes. talked about. It's big. They license uh, rights to their stories for film, TV, and book projects. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, I'll get to that after, I'll get to this next point after your case. But okay. this case is awesome. This case is, it's huge. And I didn't even include all the details. Mm -hmm. So March 3rd, 1974. This is Mr. Peter Beckford, his daughter Vicky, his son Eric, and his wife Sharon. That's the family. So Mr. Beckford is 50. And he noted on his kitchen calendar that his daughter Vicky's car had just gotten a flat tire on a trip to the drugstore. This was the beginning of an all-out siege by violent inhuman spirits. The night before, Vicky, 19, had crossed a line. She invited a demonic spirit to manifest. She gave it permission, unknowingly, on her part, and she nevertheless committed a supernatural faux pas. Vicky began using a Ouija board a year prior. Her family was strict and religious and kept very tight reins on her and her 15-year-old brother. She had few friends and decided to try and make a friend through the board. When everyone went to bed, she placed her fingers on the planchette and asked her first question. And so it begins. 
She contacted what she thought was the spirit of a teenage boy who died when she was a little girl. She became infatuated with the board and her supposed teen angel, who supposedly wasn't allowed to reveal his name. Mm. And on March 2nd, she pleaded with the spirit to manifest just once so that she could see what he looked like. And the next day, Pete Beckford tried unsuccessfully to start his car. Lifting the hood, he found spark plug wires pulled out, rubber hoses unfastened, unfastened, and the fan belt was cut. A short time later, Vicky's car, too, wouldn't start and had to be towed to a local garage. And at the garage, they determined the internal engine parts had been disassembled. That week, a doorbell was torn out. Um, foundation shrubs were yanked out at the ground level, roots and all. A six-foot cast iron pipe housing electrical wires mysteriously bent 90 degrees on the Mm -hmm. side of their house. And on March 8th, Pete noted one flat. As soon as Vicky's car came back from the shop, one of her other tires lost air. The next day, another tire was flat. And it looked like it had been cut by a knife. And the Ouija board boyfriend was MIA. Shocker. Anytime she tried to make contact... It immediately went to goodbye. Mm-hmm. Nothing. She got radio silence. The second week of March, material damage to the house and cars was so frequent that Pete complained to the police. And upon arrival, Pete told the police about the garden shrubs, the intrusion into their locked garage to puncture tires and tear engines apart. And the policeman assured Pete that they would keep an eye on the house during their night patrols. Later that week... Pete and his wife were asking their son about his friends, thinking that, you know, it could be his friends well, just the first going thing around. Gonna, like lead around yeah, with. Yeah, causing vandalism. Yeah. And all three heard a smash on the wall inside the house. They found an 18-inch hole in the drywall in Eric's room. That night in bed, they could hear scratching inside the walls, and it sounded to them like a squirrel. Mm. Vicky's car had already suffered three flat tires, so her dad bought her a new set of radials. And on March 19th, in the locked garage, one of the new radials went flat, again as if slashed by a knife. By the third week of March, shit is going down. There's <laughs> pounding outside the house, like a loud kaboom-type pounding, mm-hmm. in sets of or a series of threes, with so much force it shook the house. There were sharp, jarring raps, and they're heard inside the walls as well. And around midnight, it sounded like the floorboards were being torn torn up and mm-hmm. that boards were being torn off the walls throughout their small ranch home. The weekend of March 20th and 21st, pressure valves on the radiators become unscrewed, spewing hot water all over the walls and carpets. So Pete replaced the radiator cylinders, but... Every few hours, they come loose again, inflicting more water damage. Finally, he just turned off the heat in the basement. I was the- waiting for you to say, finally, he just burned the house. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, at this point, I mean, it's so wet, it might not burn. Yeah, it might not even So up, the pounding but- is more frequent and intense. Pete had 23 years experience in machine design, so he nearly tore his house apart, searching for the source of the noise. And on Sunday, he called a furnace repairman and a plumber. So early on Tuesday, the fourth week of March, 
The furnace repairman arrived early in the morning and declared the furnace is in working order. He too heard the noises and spent 19 hours in the home trying to stop the poundings. In the end, he said the noise was not being caused by the furnace and left. So Wednesday, <laughs> yeah, Wednesday, the plumber came and examined the radiators. Mrs. Beckford told the plumber that every day one or two valves unscrew themselves, spewing out steam and hot water, and told him about the pounding and the scratches. So the plumber tested for leaks, but the radiators were in perfect order. He did replace the old valves with new, um, cinching them in as hard as he could. He would no sooner move on to a new radiator and found the previous one he'd been working on, the cylinders lying on the floor by the radiator. Could you imagine, like, you're a plumber? Yeah. And you get that call, and they're basically like, hey, can you come over to our house? You know they lightly played that off, because they're not coming on strong with all this crazy stuff happening. They're like, look, we got some things you got to deal with, you know. It gets worse. And he gets over there, and he's he at first he's probably walking in like, oh, you know, just just a valve. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put just a valve in. Now he's wrapped up in this this hell house. Yeah. So he does that twice. The yeah. full testing, mm-hmm. replacing, repairing. He does that two full times. Finally, he puts the old cylinders back on, packs up his tools and says, lady, you got yourself a problem. Yeah. So another of Vicky's tires was slashed with the quote unquote knife. And this paled um with the poundings that were growing louder and went on for hours on end and into the night. Now, pictures and decorations are falling off the walls from the force of the impact. March 31st, Sunday. Another knife hole appeared in one of Vicky's new radials, the sixth time a tire had been cut or gone flat. The last time she'd have tire problems. Around 10 p.m., with unstoppable poundings, Mr. and Mrs. Beckford were on their bed, the kids on the floor in the master bedroom watching TV when the lights went on and off three times in succession. Then the TV went dead. The Beckfords watched a heavy dresser eerily begin to levitate a couple inches off the floor. The dresser, six feet long, weighing some 250 pounds, began twisting back and forth. Perfume and cosmetic bottles fell over, dropped to the floor, and broke. And the dresser was then set down. A moment later, a drawer slid open, hovered for a second, and forcefully slammed shut. Soon all the drawers were slamming in and out by themselves. A heavy chair with folded clothes lifted three feet off the floor, tilted on its side, dumped the clothes, fell on top of the linen with a heavy thud. Next, one at a time, the pictures lifted from their hooks, drifted from the wall, and floated in a circle around the room. The full bed they were sitting on collapsed and the pictures dropped to the floor and all activity ceased. You know, so just your average night. So after cleaning up... really, they don't need the TV to work. They have enough entertainment in the house. Correct. Yeah. So after cleaning up the mess, turning off the lights, they heard the sound of a kitten meowing in the spare bedroom. Minutes later, it sounded like a crying baby. And always... Present was the scratching, which now changed into ripping and tearing noises. Nice. And again, sounded like planks being torn from the walls. And it sounded like the house was being dismantled. The poundings picked up on the roof and outside of the house and into the inside walls. 
Over the course of an hour, the poundings went up the hallway, then anonymously or ominously stopped. Suddenly, sharp jarring raps sounded on their headboard, and as they as if they were being hit by hammers. So they jumped off the bed, but the noises continued. And at one point, Pete counted eighteen successive bangs on the headboard. This is the headboard, right by your head. And as the fear grew in the house, the activity grew in intensity. Mm -hmm. As the sound of furniture was heard falling over in the living room, Pete started to leave to investigate when they heard a blood-curdling scream in Vicky's room. Awesome. Something was here, she said in a breathless panic. Something was in the room with me. And on April Fool's Day, it rained rocks. Because that's what it does. (laughs) They fell from the blue sky, pelted the roof, and rolled onto the lawn. One of the rocks crashed through the back window, terrified the Beckfords. Um, Mrs. Beckford called her husband, Pete, at work, and Pete told her to call the police and said he'd be home right away. Which, I'm sorry, what are the police going to do about rocks falling from the sky? There's a number of things that you've just read off that police aren't going to really handle at all. So like by, all of it. Yeah. So by the time Pete got home, the police were already on the scene and they're watching the stones fall from the sky onto the roof. They fell for about an hour <clears throat> and then stopped. Pete asked the police what to do. And they said, call a priest. So Pete called the local Catholic church and spoke to the priest on duty. Pete explained that expensive objects were being thrown down and broken the pounding and scratchings and the other uh, frightful noises going on all night and about the stones falling on the house. The priest took his address and promised to arrive there within an hour. So (laughs) the disturbances stopped at the priest's arrival. Sure. Pete took him around the house nonetheless, and they were stepping over broken furniture. And the priest assessment was that someone in the house was disturbed. So the clergyman left and it was business as usual. The disturbances were affecting Pete's work and Pete just broke down to his supervisor and explained the situation at home to him. And the supervisor suggested Pete contact the Warrens. He also suggested that Burn the a, house a blessing could help stop the anomalies that yeah. were going on in his home. So Pete went home and unpacked an 18-inch statue of St. Anne, and poor St. Anne, what she goes through. As soon as Pete brought it upstairs, he heard a commotion downstairs. And downstairs, I should clarify, is their basement. And he goes into the rec room. The rec room furniture was floating through the air. The soaps and detergent from the laundry room were also levitating, but also spilling their contents on the floor. And he went back upstairs, and the St. Anne statue was missing, and she was later found in the bathroom beside the toilet. Mm. So that night, St. Anne was discovered again under the covers in the, in the spare room. So before finding the statue, Pete found obscenities written in pencil on Eric's bedroom door, and Pete believed that his son was the source of the writing mm. and ragefully approached his son, and the boy was in despair and crying And he was like, it wasn't me. And Pete realized that it wasn't his Mm -hmm. son. So sleep is impossible at at this point in the house. They gathered toiletries, clean clothes, and left for a nearby motel. They all slept in the same room. The lights went on and off. 
Pictures came off the walls and the pounding started. The next morning after breakfast, now mind you, this is at the local hotel. Yeah. The furniture was tipped over. The drawers were pulled out. The sheets, the clothes, the mattresses, the box springs were strewn around the room. And they set about straightening up the room. The manager. So at this point. Yeah. This is when you're feeling nothing but pure defeat. Because you've left. Yeah. You left. You left. You're gone. Yep. You're like, you know what? Yep. And it's with That's you. That's the house. Screw it. Yep. Let it go. Let mm-hmm. it burn. Yep. And now you're realizing that wherever you go. It's going with your you. Your little shadow's following you. Your little buddy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So the manager appears and said that other guests had complained about the Beckford, the Beckford children banging on the walls all night. And the maid pointed out the vandalism to the room. Mm. Pete took the blame apologized, and assured the manager it wouldn't happen again. That night, it resumed, and the Beckfords returned home. Pete sat on a throne of lies with that statement. Saturday, April 6th. Pete opened the door to horrible smells. Rugs and beds were saturated with spilled food, cleaning fluids, liquor, shoe polish, cologne, and perfume. Furniture was knocked over, some of it broken. The walls were strewn with profanities, spelled in blood-red ink, obscene accusations against God and Christ. They spent the rest of the day putting their home back in order. April 7th, Palm Sunday. Why would you put your home back in order? You know you're going to wake up the next day and it's just going to be all fucked up again. Yeah. So I mean, I guess, you know, idle hands or deadly hands, you know, you got to... They're still trying to make it their home. Yeah, yeah. uh. So the next day... April 7th, Palm Sunday, Pete's brother Terry brought his family for dinner, and Pete and Sharon explained their their ordeal ordeals to Terry. And no unusual activity occurred as they sat down to dinner, and Terry's response was there had to be a rational answer for the ordeal. After dinner, they went to the rec room, and Terry had brought slides of their vacation. Okay, let me just say, nobody wants to watch your vacation slides. Please don't do this to people. Well, I don't want to do it now because <laughs> vacation slides are, you know, yeah. I, I've gone through enough vacation slides when I was a kid. Yeah. When they use slides. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that little clink clink noise? Yes, yeah, I do. Every time, clink clink. I do, You'd hear I do. that 150 times, clink clink. Uh-huh. And then they'd be, wait, where's that one for? Clink clink, clink clink, clink clink, clink clink. Yeah, it was great. God. And they're... Photos included shots of the Holy Land, a roadside tourist attraction. And Mm. at the slide with the crosses and the statues and the shrines. That lit some shit up, didn't it? Vicky leapt up, pointed, and said, there's something on the wall. Water was flowing out of the wall in the basement. The lights went out and the pounding started upstairs. Pete and Terry ran upstairs. It's showtime. When they got close, the noise went to another part of the house. So Pete and Terry are chasing the phantom noise around their house. Yeah. <laughs> the noise went to the roof and then the house vibrated and pictures fell. And Terry's wife and children followed them upstairs and they insisted they leave. Mm-hmm. And Terry hated to leave his brother in a state like this, but he had no choice. <laughs> so Vicky and her brother. It's brotherly love right there. Yeah. We're fighting, and the house was in a state of chaos. Pete, desperate, looked out the window and saw the cross from the top of the monastery retreat house that bordered his property. 
So Pete walked to the retreat house where a monk ushered him into the foyer. Pete pled his case and asked the monk to escort him to his house, and the monk agreed. So upon arrival, the monk surveyed the damage to the furniture, the walls, listened to the random poundings, read the obscenities, scribbled about the place, and he asked Pete to sit down in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. So the monk stated that they were under attack from negative spirits and that they need an exorcism. However, he could not perform the ritual. But before the church would assign clergy to their case, it needed to be proven. And he referred Pete to Ed Warren to start the process and advised Pete to call him right away. So at work that morning, Pete called the Warrens and spoke with Judy Penny, a young woman working with the Warrens as a liaison while they were out of town. (laughs) And she told Pete the Warrens were out west and to call back on Saturday when they would return. She would relay the message. That was five days away during Holy Week, the most notorious time of year for demonic activity. So they awoke to the sound of objects pelting the roof, stones again, and they would continue and then at will and then hit the ground and then some of the stones vanished, some of them didn't. And the ones that remained were left for the family to clean up. Anti-religious activity inside became as violent as outside. Crucifixes were upside down, pictures of saints were torn, and St. Anne kept being hidden. Eric's room. They found one of the twin beds was torn apart. The mattress under the bed frame, the box spring up against the wall covering a picture of Jesus. The double door refrigerator has now taken up residence in the middle of the kitchen floor. It had moved from the wall the exact limit of its power cord. This happened again the next night. Pete had the only key to the deep freezer in the basement. And when he opened the freezer one afternoon, he found the blacksmith anvil he kept in his garage in said freezer. His huge steel toolbox, also from the garage, he discovered in the attic. The family all felt there was now a presence in the house. They felt someone staring at them from behind. Now footsteps, the rustle of clothes, and heavy breathing. And when Mrs. Beckford would turn around, she would see a black form standing in the room behind her. April 12th, Good Friday. The stone pummeling began, bedlam within, and the evil presence is so real and physical that no one dares to be alone. Meanwhile, the Warrens were landing just after 6 p.m. at LaGuardia. Noon, April 13th. Lorraine received a call from Pete, who unfolded his tale for the next quarter of an hour, and she said they could come to his home on Sunday, the next day. So Lorraine repacked their travel bags, and that Sunday they headed to the Beckfords. They observed the state of the home, and as was their custom, Ed sat down with the family to conduct his interview, and Lorraine conducted her walkthrough of the home. During the interview, Ed discovered Vicky's use of the Ouija board and her request to have the spirit manifest. The Warrens determined the the church needed to get involved immediately. So Ed called a priest, Father Daniel, a priest in his 30s, to come perform a blessing and to bear witness to the happenings. And he arrives, he does the blessing, and the occurrences lessen, and Father Daniel is left to protect the family while the Warrens leave to clear their schedule. 
to then return to the Beckfords. So the activity continued over the next few days. Father Daniel witnessed the noises, the movement of objects, and by Wednesday, the occurrences were in defiance of the priest, if not in contempt. So Thursday the 18th, the warrants return. Father Daniel is ashen and drawn. After four days and nights with the demonic turmoil, he returned to his rectory to recompose himself and report to Father McKeegan and to state that an exorcism may be required in order to... Request him for backup. Yeah, essentially. He's like, uh... Reinforcements. Yeah. yeah. So the Warrens continue the documentation of the events in the home. On the 18th, the escalation of mad sounds, the black figure manifests in the master bedroom, the full-size bed levitates two feet off the ground, the dresser careens across the room, Eric is thrown against the wall in his bedroom, and upside down in unmelted snow is a foot-long crucifix from Pete and Sharon's room. Mm. On the 19th, obscenities and blasphemies. And, and St. Anne's still missing, right? <laughs> Poor St. Anne. It's like Elf on a Shelf. Yeah, shown on the ceiling in the master bedroom in red ink. The wallpaper is now peeled off the wall, and the red ink writing is on the wall underneath the paper. Pictures are now moved on their own. Here's my favorite part. Doilies, towels, scarves spontaneously ignited nice. and hurled themselves at someone in the room. Fun. Yeah, it's good times. You got to have your head on a swivel yeah. at their place. So weekend, the rec room, the recliners float in the air, drift to the middle of the room, pile on top of each other in sexual postures, which I'm sorry, the recliners. What does that even mean? However, I'm never going to look at our recliner the same. Right? So the rest of the furniture floated to the same area, then dropped to the floor. Wallpapers continued to peel, exposing hateful, demonic sentiments and still spontaneous fires. Mm -hmm. So Sunday, Father Daniel returns. Exorcism is the only way to stop the activity. And because of the exorcists needing to be approved by the church to perform the ritual, they have to support the request with documentation and they have to document the supernatural activity. Mm. Some of those stones that fall on the roof, they become part of the proof, if you will, of yeah. the activity. Yeah. So anticipating this, the warrants had already started collecting the necessary evidence and the paperwork, but the bulk of the paperwork would need to be completed by Father Daniel. So more than one entity is in the house, and only the most menacing, blasphemous entities dare to move religious objects, and one of them moves Father Daniel's rosary. At this point, the family is told to leave the home. So they go to Pete's parents, and the activities follow them to Pete's parents, his 70-year-old parents. Those poor things. And the, the activity also follows Father Daniel. And there's a dark cylindrical form blocking the narrow hall leading to his quarters. So when he's in his room, this presence mm-hmm. is posted outside of his room, essentially keeping him prisoner in his room. Yeah. So April 25th, the Warrens return from upstate New York, having canceled their other appointments to focus on just the Beckford case. They met Father Daniel at a local restaurant to discuss the latest developments, and they returned to the home of the Beckfords, and they're nowhere to be found. However, Father Daniel has a spare key. So Ed determines he should go in first, and the whole home had systematically been vandalized. Lamps, tables, chairs, 
Books, pictures, clothing, and furniture were strewn around the living room. The smell was repulsive. Any fluid had been dumped and left to decompose. Ed found beds turned over, drawers pulled out, linen scattered. Anything movable was ripped, torn, or turned upside down. In the kitchen, the pantry and refrigerator had been dumped in a pile in the middle of the floor with the dinner plates and the silverware heaped on top. So heading back down the hallway, Ed realizes something's wrong. A moment later, the house violently rumbles and shakes like in an earthquake. Fearing the house would collapse, Ed tried to get to the front door but was unable to move. Outside, Lorraine felt Ed was in jeopardy. When she and Father Daniel reached the front door, Ed is walking dazedly through the living room, his shirt covered in blood. When outside, his left arm had two long, deep slashes forming the sign of a cross. Mm. Ed refuses to see a doctor. The wounds were washed and bandaged tightly with gauze and tape. They have a first aid kit in their car because got to be prepared. And Ed explained psychic slashes started to be thrown around the room, cutting the walls and drapes. He put his arms up to protect his face and feeling that the forces intended to mutilate him. And he felt that it was directed at him as he was the one who originally challenged the forces in the home with religious provocation and threatened to end the rampage by calling in the church. The case had now transmuted to the confrontation stage. So Ed and Father Daniel had to stop the maniacal forces because if they backed down now, that would give a green light to kill, possess, or torment the Beckfords indefinitely. At noon, the Beckfords, pale, drawn, and bedraggled, pulled into the driveway, and when they saw the inside of the house, they plunged into despair. Father Daniel and the Warrens tried to clean up and get the house into somewhat of a semblance of an order. 426, Friday. The Warrens assisted Father Daniel with the paperwork to submit to Father McKeegan, and normally the verification could take the priest weeks to complete, But with their help, he had completed the documentation needed to request the exorcism and left that same night to submit it to Father McKeegan. In the interim, the Warrens stayed with the Beckfords. They were now under danger of possession. And at this point, here we go, metal picture frames are now smoldering and catching fire. Scarves, linen, dresses, and towels burst into flame and again flung at people in the room often causing painful burns. The phenomena went on day and night. Furniture from the master bedroom would appear in the living room. The living room furniture would appear in the bedroom. And then five minutes later, they'd switch back. I wouldn't leave anything in that house. (laughs) So on Sunday, Father Daniel called to let them know that Father McKeegan approved the exorcism. However, the assigned exorcist would need three days of prayer and fasting in Mm -hmm. order to perform the ritual. The date of the exorcism would be 5-2, Thursday. With the final battle imminent, shit escalates in the Bedford home, or the Beckford home. Sunday night, two large metal radiator covers disappear. Seconds later, there's a metal crash in the basement. Found them. Commotion in Vicky's bedroom when investigated, nothing there. And when leaving, Lorraine trips over a 16-foot aluminum extension ladder from outside. 429, Monday. The hinge pins to Eric's bedroom door were removed and the door disappeared. Same with the closet door, both of which were found in the basement. May 1st, everyone's sleeping in shifts. 
patrolling for fires. 10.30 p.m., Lorraine's in the hall. In the doorway to the living room, it's brightening. Moments later, the whole doorway is engulfed in a uh, bright light, so intense you couldn't look directly at it. Pete and Ed were in the living room and saw it, too. Lorraine enters the living room through another door, and they all watch the materialization become an older woman, though only complete from the waist up. Ed, speak to us. Lorraine, Ed, back away. It's not human. At that instant, two velvet fireside chairs fell to their sides, tumbled toward Ed, rose in the air, legs pointing toward him, pinned him against the wall. The doorway figure grinned maniacally and disappeared. Ed made the sign of the cross over the chairs, which dropped them to the floor. 12 hours to the exorcism. Exorcism day. The Beckfords attend 8 a.m. mass mass and return home at 9 a.m. The exorcists arrive at 9.30. He's Father Rourke. He's powerfully built, unsmiling, and in a black short sleeve shirt, white clerical uh, collar, and he's all business. And he had worked with Ed before. So he talks with Ed, and Ed states he believes uh, along with the lesser inhuman spirits, an incubus entity was present, having been attracted by the girl. He also believed a higher diabolical intelligence, a devil, was actually directing the attack. They returned to the living room. Father Rourke removed a purple stole, kissed it, put it around his neck from his black bag. And before he could begin the ritual, he had to bless all of those present to protect them from anything that could happen during the ritual. So he spoke only to Ed, but turned to Vicky and asked sternly, are you Vicky? Yes, father. Father Daniel told me what you've done here. He said flatly, Vicky shaken by the priest's intimidating tone, fought back tears of guilt and shame and unyielding. He asked, did you will this terrible thing to happen to your family? No, I didn't, Vicky shot in anger, then lowered her voice. No, Father, I did not will it to happen. It was an accident. And then Father says, the church considers what you've done to be a sin. Do you know that? Have you asked the Lord for forgiveness? Yes, Father. Good, he said, blessing her. It's necessary we understand each other. With that, he began reading the rite of exorcism, partly in English, partly in Latin, The rite consists of prayers, psalms, and pronouncements, commanding the invading spirits to leave the premises. It took more than an hour to read the entire ritual. During that time, the house was quiet, except for the exorcist's voice. The concluding act of the exorcism is an outright command to the spirit to reveal its identity. Father Rourke, I command thee, thou unclean spirit, O serpent of old, by the judge of the living and the dead, By the creator of the world who hath the power to cast into hell, tell me thy name or give some sign and depart forthwith from the howl. He waited a full minute. Nothing happened. Displeased, Father Rourke read the command once again in a loud, booming voice, adding even more threatening phrases. I enjoin you under penalty. Every unclean spirit, each devil, each part of Satan, be gone in the name of God. Yield to God. It is not men you are disobeying. God the Father commands you. God the Son commands you. God the Holy Spirit commands you. Hear, therefore, and fear Satan, enemy of the human race, source of death, 
root of evil, seducer of men, cause of discord, creator of agony. Behold the cross of the Most High God. I command thee, obey and be gone. Tell me thy name or give some sign and depart from this dwelling. By the fireplace, a manifesting visage slowly becomes clear and the head has horns on it. Let me guess. His name is Keith. Right. It stood on cloven feet and had a tail. The temperature in the room dropped to near freezing while the stomach turning smell of rotting flesh filled the air. Casting holy water on the seven-foot-tall image, Father Rourke commanded, Be gone in the name of God! The spirit instantly vanished. No sooner did the figure disappear than the blood-red face of a devil with a head as big as a basketball developed on the soiled beige carpet, again with horns protruding from the sides. Father Rourke swung the aspergillum with holy water at the two-dimensional figure looking up at him from the floor with a look of enraged hate. And then it slowly faded away. A minute later, all that was left was a pink outline on the rug. The sign given, the exorcist read a concluding prayer of thanksgiving, ending with the statement, the sign of departure having been shown to us, I commend the safety of these people, the Beckfords, and their dwelling in your hands, Lord. Hear us and hear their prayers. Design them to live in peace and contentment from this day forward. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. After the exorcism of their home, the Beckford's life slowly returns to normal. The house sustained damage to the furniture, walls, rugs, mattresses, bedding, plumbing, roof, and cars, amounting to well over $5,000. And, shocker, insurance doesn't cover acts of God. So today they live contentedly in the same small home. Eric is away in college, and Vicky is now the... Mother of three small children. Hmm. Yeah. You know who made out best in that whole story? Nobody. No, there is one person who made out the best in that whole entire story. Father Rourke, because he only had to be there one day? Nope. (laughs) The auto mechanic who sold him the tires for his car. (laughs) Right? Could you imagine? Yeah. Being the auto mechanic. And, you know, you get this guy who comes in the first time and his car's all messed up. Yeah. Got some tires. Hey, I need a couple tires. Uh-huh. <laughs> Tomorrow shows up. Need another freaking tire. Need another tire. Oh, it looks like you got somebody uh, on your ass. Who'd you piss off? Day three. Yeah. I need two more tires. Yeah. And my engine's all apart. And yeah. my spark plug wire, you know, my spark plug uh, cables are cut. Yeah. Yeah. So So that auto mechanic made out great in this experience. <laughs> and I'm thinking he's the only one. That made out great. Yeah. And he got unscathed, you know. Yeah. He was going home. Watching, but do you see why I you know, was like, we got to use that Oh, one. yeah. No, that's crazy. But I'm going to say this. Mm-hmm. Of all of the movie, movies they've done, why didn't they do this one? Uh, well, we're going to get into that okay. pretty soon. All right. Before we get into that. To kind of wrap up the Warrens before we get into the movies and things. And I, I hate bringing up movies. We discussed yeah, this in the past. it's not really our thing. Yeah, and I'm just not I'm not a fan of it. But with the Warrens, we, we got to kind of go we there. We kind of have to. What was interesting was I read one set of numbers and you read another set of numbers. Sure did. Now, the numbers you said were pretty realistic. Yes. They said they did about eight. 800 cases, cases. which yeah. you say 50 years 
You're yeah. looking at about like 20 cases a year. Yeah. And that I buy. That's saying right. if yeah. they did a thousand cases, mm-hmm. let's say. It's about 20 cases mm-hmm. a year. I read somewhere that they claim to investigate over 10,000 cases during their career. Yeah. And for those that, I, I get it. There's people that just revolt math and like can't stand math. Exactly. And here's the thing. You could hear that and be like, well, it's a lot of cases. They were doing stuff around. That's 50 years. For someone who likes to do the math. Yeah. I did the math. And okay. for 50 years over the course of their career, let's just say it's 50 years. Because I mean, they started in their 20s, let's say. Yeah. That'll take you to your 70s. Now, this is working every single day. Yes. 10,000 all over the course of 50 years averages out to 200 cases per year. Mm -hmm. That's 1.8 cases per day for 50 years. I'm calling bullshit. Well, I mean, in this one, they were there for many days. Yeah, but I just, I don't even, it doesn't even matter if they have a team or not. Yeah. And on top of that, they were doing college lecture tours. Yes. They were doing TV spots. They were doing all this stuff. No, I'm not buying the 10,000. Don't forget writing their books. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, even if they had a ghostwriter for it. I mean. Yeah. Even like the demonologist one there, they didn't write that book. No, they didn't. And a lot of the other books they had, they didn't write it. They had a a ghostwriter or a writer on their behalf. Right. But. I saw that 10,000 thing. I'm like, I got to bring this up because I get people just don't want to do math at all. Yeah. And some would just look and be like, well, yeah, they were around for a while. Mm-hmm. I guess 10,000 cases sounds, sounds about right. right. Yeah, it's 1.8 per day for 50 years. Yeah, that's almost. I challenge you to do two things a day, anything. Yeah. I don't care what it is. <laughs> do two things a day every day for 50 years of your life. I. Yeah. Good luck. So. Their paranormal investigations serve as the inspiration behind a lot of iconic horror movie franchises. Yes. The Conjuring series is the most popular one. Mm-hmm. And that series began in 2013, the most recent one. There was the older Conjuring. Uh, when was that? In the 70s at some point, 73 or 76. But was that their their case? I don't know. That's where it gets a little... Because at least when they listed Amityville, they did list them as consultants in 1979. Yeah. And again, when it was remade in 2000. Yeah, but those movies were really kind of directed at those instances. And Amityville, they didn't even set foot in the place. They weren't even there when it happened. Yeah, that's what they, I'm saying. They, they were there after the Lutzes had left. Yeah. And yet, which, and I'm going to say it for what it is, Lorraine went to the her grave saying that what happened to them was true. Well, she went to the grave saying that that Amityville house was the worst case of demonic possession, I guess you occupation uh, or whatever. uh, Yeah. 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 You would, but I mean, I'm sorry. The one we just read, how is Amityville? No. And that's where I'm going to say it. You you start, you you look at the outside of it. You see the movie, the conjuring and everything. Sweet little couple. Yeah. Yeah. I, I forget who played Ed and Lorraine. Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. Patrick Wilson is Ed, yeah. Vera Farmiga is so, Lorraine. Yeah. Patrick and Vera. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there was the release of The Conjuring in 2013. That earned $300 million at the box office just right off the snap. And that was before the series expanded to The Conjuring 2. Yeah. Then there's Annabelle, yep. Annabelle Creation, Annabelle mm-hmm. Comes Home, Yep. The Nun, The Curse of La Lenora, or... Lorena or yeah, I think that's what it is. 
So it becomes this billion dollar franchise at this point. Yeah. And then, of course, ironically, mm-hmm. when these movies come out. Yeah. And this money's There's flying money all over the had. place. Yep. Again, this is the part of the, the tour where we're going to beat up on some people here. Yeah. And we're just, we're we're giving our take on it. Our opinion really honestly means nothing at the end of the day. But I think if no one's known this stuff, they need to kind of just know that it's there. And you mentioned earlier in the case, Judith Penny. Yes. The assistant. Yes. Well, in their December liaison. Thir- yeah, their liaison. Well, in December 13th, 2017, Judith Penny's basically claims this alleged affair with Ed Warren. Mm-hmm. She claims she had an underage love affair with Ed starting at age 15, and Ed was in his mid-30s with Lorraine's knowledge. Yep. Penny claims she was pregnant with Ed's child, only to get an abortion in 1973. Mm-hmm. Penny also claimed in a sworn declaration that Ed was uh, abusive to Lorraine, stating that sometimes Ed would actually have to slap her across the face to shut her up. Yep. That's her quote. Yep. And some nights I thought they were going to kill each other. And The Conjuring brought on all these uh, these legal filings and recordings, assuming the position that the depiction of the Warrens stretched the truth. Right. But here's the thing. Movies market well if films are claimed to be based on like a true story or fact. Yeah. They just naturally market well. They do. It, it doesn't matter what it's about, whether it's about this type of stuff. But also or, controversy can also jack up. Yeah, but but people, I mean, you think about it. When you sit down and watch a movie, what's the first thing to put on there? Based on a, a true, true story. story. And everybody goes, ooh, ooh. this really happened. And How many times have we watched uh, Based on a True Story and then we would go and look up the true story and we would go, none of that. Yeah. Not even not even close. Not even close. Yeah. However, that's the thing is there's no explicit rules on how far filmmakers can deviate from the truth. Right. On a story like this. And the courts give the studios a ton of latitude in these situations. Right. There's cases that have been brought up all the time and they just say, well, you know, it's art. Yep. And basically freedom of expression well no and here's the thing is they're trying to make a movie and the thing is is i mean if you make a movie about something that really happened it's actually pretty boring and that's why they dramatize everything Everything. yeah because you need that dramatization to make the story exciting entertaining i mean if you have ben stein from ferris bueller telling a story (laughs) you're gonna fall asleep but if you have a gifted storyteller, I, I think I might want to see that. You know, you would. You'd be the only crazy, uh, crazy person on the planet. Now we'll probably hear from everybody. I would love to hear Ben Stone say that too. <laughs> so, Lorraine's attorney. Now, granted, all this stuff that we're getting of this uh, specific story with the Conjuring and Judith Penny and this other producer, uh, basically, is from. HollywoodReporter.com. Yeah. I have to preface that. This is from a Hollywood rag, basically. But she swore. But she has some sworn um, affidavits sworn and statements. And there yeah. are some recordings and there are actually legal filings as well. But with all truth be told, those legal filings haven't gone anywhere. anywhere. Yep. And that's where I'm going to get to the story. This is where I'm just going to put it all at ahead. I think this is what happened. Because Lorraine's attorney 
says that Judy and this producer, Tony Spira, or I'm um, sorry, Tony Spira is the Warren's daughter and son-in-law. Yeah, son-in-law. Which needs to be mentioned. They said they never saw any alleged conduct during the decades they spent with Ed, Lorraine, and Penny. Right. And Penny lived at this house for decades. Yeah. She had her boyfriend move in there. Mm-hmm. And the thing was, is she was playing, you know, she was basically an admin assistant or liaison because they would be off and at colleges the and, house. and stuff like that. And she watched the house. I mean, she had an obligation there that she apparently agreed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Warrens opened their home to her when she was 18 and had nowhere else to live following a childhood of neglect. And this is basically Lorraine's attorney Barkin stating this. And he says, during much of their career, Ed and Lorraine were out on the road yep. working on cases and giving lectures. And... Miss Penny lived at and watched their home. They also said Penny had a long-term boyfriend, we mentioned earlier, for much of that time, who she eventually married, and the couple spent holidays with their family. Yeah. So Judy, the daughter, and the son-in-law, son-in-law Tony Spira, they believe that Penny is being manipulated. Probably. And I, I kind of see this looking because soon after the original conjuring movie opened producer tony DeRosa grun sent an email informing top warners and new line executives that the film was a far cry from the advertised true story of the warrens and that's what this group is pissed about yeah. it seems to be this producer and penny is the conjuring made the warrens look like this sweet little couple mm-hmm. they were in love they got along they were like just that couple you envy of kindness yep. and and all of that stuff. And and they're saying, no, that's not the true story. And they're locked in this uh, this legal battle over, guess what? The profits. Mm-hmm. And another person who's in this, which I was kind of shocked to read, is the one who did the demonologist book, Brittle. Yeah. He's in on it, too. Um, I don't know if he's in on it with them as well, you know, with the producer. Or and, separately. And them are separate. But what Brittle was basically suing... Warner's a new line for is he was arguing that the films the films basically just took a lot of stuff from his book yeah and just took a lot of stuff from his his stories and you know right. his written accounts and he's uh he was suing him for like 900 million dollars basically the studio was just saying look no one has a monopoly to tell stories right. or make movies about true life figures and events but Brittle countered that the studio is aware that the portrayal of the Warrens in his book turned out to be far from truthful. Brittle claims he believed the stories the Warrens told him, but later found out they were concocted. Yeah. And that's going to segue into this different aspect of a lot of people have busted up their stuff, busted up their evidence. Yeah. And I read, I don't remember the gentleman's names because the Warrens took items from each of their cases took them home yeah on the guys that That's they were steve novella and perry d'angelo right that these items were too dangerous to be able to get into someone else's hands mm-hmm. because you were just inviting this activity to resume and start again so they kept them in initially it was in ed's office and then it was in its own room And at some point, they opened an occult museum. Yeah. And those two gentlemen took the tour, 
Yep, they're part this, of they're part of the New England Skeptical Society. Yeah, and they um apparently part of the tour is you got to see everything, you weren't allowed to touch anything, mm-hmm. and then Ed would present his quote unquote evidence, you know, his his pictures or recordings. And their point was none of the recordings Ed had had ever been submitted to be tested for authenticity to make sure that, you know, they hadn't been corrupted in any way, shape, or form. He never submitted anything for any sort of analysis. Essentially, it was his word. Well, and the stuff that they did look, like they took the $13 tour and looked all around at the evidence that they gathered mm-hmm. in their their area there. And they watched videos and looked at the best evidence the Warrens had. That's yeah. what they state. Yep. And that's where people got to understand is, like Steve Novell and Perry DeAngelis, they're saying, we got to see everything. But now you're seeing the other side of the Warrens that are saying, no, we didn't show them everything. And there's people that complain back and forth with it. But the stuff that these two skeptics saw basically they found common errors with flash photography, which I can vouch for that stuff all day being one who's taken pictures and gotten into photography at, at great depth. Yes. You can, there's a lot of errors there and there was nothing evil in the artifacts the Warrens collected. They basically said, quote, they have a ton of fish stories about evidence that got away. So they would always talk about, well, this one happened, but, you know, something happened. There was yeah. this or that or the other thing. And they were also saying that they weren't doing good scientific investigation. They had a predetermined conclusion, which they adhered to. Right. And literally and religiously. And again, that goes back to the gap where we were talking about in the past with science and this type of occult and paranormal, supernatural following and, and religious following is, you know, science has this very yes. stubborn way about things and others have a faith and spiritual mm-hmm. list way about it. Mm-hmm. And that's where these skeptics were just saying, basically they weren't doing it well scientifically. Now I got an issue with that. But they're not scientists. Yeah. They're not scientists, but also here's my, here's my opinion. Should on we it. go back to the fact that they were artists painting very yeah. poor pictures. Yeah, and I mean, by let's the get way. to it. Yeah, yeah. The landscape <laughs> paintings, that, if you really want to check There is out. actually one of them in the book, and yeah. I will include that on the Facebook yeah. group no, as well. Uh, basically, if something happens, it happens. Yes. And that's where, again, I look at this with the, the Warrens. Basically, all this stuff is starting to come out it was it was coming out after the movies, you know. Now this bit with Steve Novell and Perry DeAngelis that was in 1997. That was before the movies. Yeah, and they were going through. Yeah. Now what I find disturbingly quiet is the group that they founded. Like no one's really kind of outwardly talking about that. Nobody's now, really talking part is, about anything. Yeah, and the tough part of it is is their their stuff like their museum that they made up. Yeah. it was closed, and the sons and legal. This son-in-law's in legal turmoil well, yeah. with Turns that. Turns out you can't run a uh, a museum out of a residence. No. On a quiet, dead-end residential street. No, it's got to be commercial property because it's a business. Yeah. So yeah. the son-in-law is trying to find a quote-unquote commercial space mm-hmm. for said museum. And it's interesting 
because in the demonologist, and I'm going to check right now when this was published. 1980. 80, yeah. In this, in the demonologist, they state that all of the Warrens effects, mm-hmm. their entire, essentially 50 years of investigations yeah. was supposed to go to the British Museum upon their passing. Apparently that's not happening. Well. Because they have now both passed and the son-in-law is trying to reopen the museum mm-hmm. in a commercial space. Yeah, yeah. And I think I get kind of where he's going because here, let's just assume the position that there is something there or some things mm-hmm. that are compelling. Then I would see where the son-in-law would want to have that closer more to the family than, you know, because you give it to the museum, it's not yours anymore. Right. You can't do anything to protect it. You can't do anything to that nature. Now, what's also interesting is all the criticism that Steve Novella and Perry DeAngelis gave on the scientific end. Yeah. At the end of the day, they said that what they found was they were a nice couple. They were genuinely sincere. Yep. They just didn't have, to them, compelling evidence. Right. And the thing is, is we're not going to know until some of this stuff lets go. At some point, you'd think it'd have to come out. But I mean, I just look, it, I find it interesting that they went through college tours. They did all these, they were on Merv Griffin, which yeah, people have to understand that weren't of that era. And I wasn't, but the tail end of it. Of, right. We knew how big Merv Griffin yeah, was. Yeah, if you were on Merv Griffin, you were big. Yeah. like You were you were, that would have been being on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Yeah, exactly. Both you know, big. But it's different than like late night now. Like right, late, yeah. Late night now isn't a big deal. It's a freaking joke. Yeah. Sorry. But I mean, it just, it's not a big deal. <laughs> yeah. And you've got a few of them. Like, exactly. Like before all that, you had Johnny Carson. And before Johnny Carson, you had, had Merv, Merv Griffin. Griffin. And those were, that was it. If you wanted to make it, you had to get it up to there. Yeah. So I think this is my theory. Ooh, lay it on me. I know. I always got to cook something up, but I but love it. For me, what I but when I say cook something up, I always try to find the simplest explanation out of anything that seems murky and complicated. Because mm-hmm. in the history of my life, that served me very, very well. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, most, not all the time, it appears to hit head on. Got it. I think what you have here is a couple that got out of the war had a kid, and they're young, and they're trying to figure out how to make money. Yeah. And they're both struggling artists. Mm-hmm. So they're going with the one thing they know, and they start doing the artist thing. Right. They both have this thing in common where they're into the supernatural and paranormal. They've got things that they believe in. Mm-hmm. And together, they're going through and trying to figure out just how to wing it in life, yep. like everyone else. And... I think they heard some stories of haunted homes mm-hmm. or whatever, just being interested in something like that. Right. They use their art as a method to get more information about that. And just bit by bit, they were chasing this. I think they were kind of like the modern day, like ghost hunter. Yeah. Just checking things out, seeing what it's all about. And then eventually they got pretty knowledgeable about things. Mm-hmm. Then the worst thing happened is they got famous. Yeah. 
and fame and celebrity destroys everything. True. I, I just, that's my opinion. I think fame and celebrity is the worst thing that could happen to a person, yeah. a couple, a family. Mm-hmm. It's the worst, you know, some of, some people handle it really well mm-hmm. or they appear to handle it well, but it still is a lot of just drama and trauma to a, a family and, and a couple. Mm-hmm. And I think they were propelled into something that obviously they had no idea they were going to get into. Right. And with all that came the BS. Mm-hmm. And when you start reaching that celebrity bit, well, you want Ed and Lorraine to check your your little scratchy noises on the side of the house. And now you've got all these fraudulent claims. Right. You've got a ton of them. Now, like the, the story you gave, that's an amazing, amazing story. Yeah. And if there's evidence of that, which there could be locked up in a house somewhere. Right for whatever legal reason or whatever yeah. reason they have, because it's their stuff, mm-hmm. hopefully they have that. If not, then you really got to wonder, did the fame get to them? Yeah. And get to them in a number of ways. Was it an affair? Was it right. floating up the, the the stories to get another TV spot or another another guest speaking spot because they're getting paid for these college tours. Yeah. They were getting paid for the novels. They were getting paid for all that other stuff. And working as consultants for the movies. Yeah. They started consulting on the movies in, uh, what was it? 1979. I think so. And like Lorraine was pretty, you know, she was pretty intent on preventing any kind of sword aspects of her story from being portrayed on screen. Her deal with new line with the, uh, conjuring she served as a consultant on or model for the, the, the conjuring includes these like weird restrictions and films. Uh, they couldn't show her or her husband engaging in crimes, including sex with minors, child pornography, prostitution, or sexual assault. Neither the husband nor wife could be depicted as participating in any kind of extramarital sexual relationship. Now this is where I, this is where Hollywood just makes my skin crawl. Mm-hmm. The talent attorney, I won't say her name, says she has never seen specific language barring such depictions, though individuals selling rights to their stories sometimes restrict portrayals. But she says, I have done deals which prevented depictions of certain specific types of odious behavior, which are not relevant to the underlying story and in which typically the person is not known to have participated. Mm-hmm. So saying two different things there. She's saying, oh, I've never seen anything like that, but I've done some stuff that, you know, kind of has that. And that's where, like, Hollywood drives me nuts. It's like, if you and I were famous or, you know, had a reason to be portrayed in a film, Mm -hmm. I would have those same requirements. You're not going to put us in this type of situation. Right. And the reason I know that is because movies will do whatever it takes to make the story compelling. Exactly. They'll do whatever they need to do to make the money. And this is another one of my major pet peeves, and it just makes me want to just scream to the sky, is whenever I'm talking about a historical event with someone and they quote a fucking movie (laughs) based on a historical account. Yeah. So, like, you'd be talking about JFK and be like, yeah, no, it's all kind of weird how... JFK, you know, like he drove up that way and, you know, they were driving around. And the ricochet they had to, bullet? Well, yeah, you know, you just pick up anything and somebody be like, yeah, like in that movie JFK with Oliver Stone, right then and there, my head explodes. Yeah. And I'm just like, you know I'm what? Out. I'm out. 
Yeah. If you're going to quote movies on historical moments, I'm not here. Life is not a movie. You know, but they're going to do whatever it takes yep. to make it compelling. That's yes. it's all their their job is to sell movies. Yeah, they don't know. even have lines. So there's not even a line for them to cross. No. And like I said earlier, the courts yeah. are they give them a ton of latitude on this yeah. because it is a story. Yep. And that's why I think people have to understand is these stories at the end of the day are stories. They're stories. Yeah. And I hate to say it, I hate to sound like that old jerk, but it's just if you want to know a lot about a certain topic, you got to read about it. Yes. And you can't just read one account. No. You got to read a few books, a few sources and and then make an informed opinion on that certain topic. Right. And the Warrens are a classic example of this. Yes. Where cuz if you watch The Conjuring, oh they're just as sweet as apple pie. Right. They're American dream. Yeah. You know, they're that American couple from oh, yeah. the 50s yep. that everybody just wanted to be. And they had this exciting lifestyle and supernatural. And here's the thing. They could have been struggling with demons if all of this is true with everything that they were doing. Yeah. They could have been struggling with it. They could have took a lot of stuff home. Like the example yeah. the priest did in the case. And and that yeah. would bring these negative aspects in their life where they did certain things and maybe had bursts of outrage where they just couldn't handle whatever they were juggling and also just the stress of stuff. Not right. making excuses, yeah. but I'm just saying that's another way of looking at all this. Yeah. But one thing that I just can't let go with the Warrens was <laughs> Lorraine, everybody was giving her crap during their rise. Right. That she wasn't a, um, uh, a clairvoyant. Right. So they said she got tested. And she supposedly tested very high. And she tested very high as yes. a, uh, I want to say a light trans, uh, light trans medium or, yes. or light trans corp, uh, clairvoyant. Yes. Something to that is, uh, extent. Well, the interesting part of that whole story, and this is again, you got to read a few sources. Right. And go down the rabbit hole. The person who did the test is Thelma Moss. And she basically was a native of Connecticut. Yeah. Great. Basically, from what I read in some areas, friends with them. Of course. She um <laughs> she she was a uh, a scriptwriter. She basically was uh she per pursued a career in acting and writing scripts for film and television and she was one of the earliest members of the uh the actors studio. And she struggled for years with persistent psychological problems. Uh, depression. She was grieving the loss of her husband. He died of cancer uh, like two days after she gave birth to a baby daughter. Just a lot of trauma. So um, so she survived two suicide attempts. And okay. for the treatment of her problems, now you got to understand, it's the 60s. She, under, she underwent a course of LSD psychotherapy. And then she later published an auto, autobiographical uh, autobiography uh -huh. uh, account of her treatment. And the book's called Myself and I, under the pseudonym Constance A. Newland. And it was a bestseller in 1962. So she returned to academia in the mid-60s after doing the book. Uh -huh. She studied at UCLA uh, Neuropsychiatric Institute. 
and she interned at the Wadsworth uh, Veterans Hospital. She earned her PhD in psychology from U, uh, UCLA and became a professor at UCLA, the same institution. And for a time in the 1970s, she led UCLA's parapsychology laboratory while it existed. doesn't exist anymore. Right. So, I mean, kudos for her. She goes through this whole right. rise and bit of it, but she her, wasn't uh, qualified until the seventies. Am, am I remembering your timeline yeah, correctly? Yeah, yeah. So in college, and she's Lorraine doing, was tested when. That's a good question. It was um, in the sixties, correct? No, it, it lines up in in that re- regard. Um, I, I honestly, I can't remember where that was placed but here's the thing and this is where again i'm just going to poke holes because i'm a a skeptic in this regard she explored a wide range of specific subjects in parapsychology hypnosis ghosts levitation um alternative medicine but her research on curlian photography was the most significant theme in her work for the remainder of her career and she came to believe that Curlian photography depicts the astral body. She made several trips to the Soviet Union to explore Russian uh, work in the field, and she wrote two books on that and related subject plus lesser works. So she used Curlian, uh, Curlian uh, photography for uh, with Lorraine. Right. And that's what she used to prove that there. Now, that has changed to where it's basically uh, scientists said that Curlian photography is basically like the moisture. So what, what it is, is like, say you take a picture of your finger, Mm -hmm. there's an aura around your finger. And what they were saying was, is this was some sort of like energy. that. So she just took a picture of her. Well, this type of picture that does uh, the Curlian photography. But my point is, and, even Peter Venkman, when he was testing ah, 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 the students, ah, 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 it was what's on the back of this card. Yeah. So she didn't even test her. She took a picture. Well, but a clairvoyant kind of sees things differently. It's not like a, a psychic, it, at least. But still. No, I know. And this is a where, picture is not a test. And this is where I'm getting at. This is where the bullshit starts to pile up. I'm going to go this- back to last episode. I want my money back. (laughs) Yeah, that's basically what I'm getting at is that's where this bullshit starts to pile up. Mm -hmm. It really does. And it's hard to ignore. I'm not saying that some of their stuff and and the so what Curlian photography is, is there's this aura around it. And I forget exactly how the photos take and I'm not going to get into that because that's a whole different Different subject to get into. And it's something we could get into. Yeah. Maybe, you know, or or explain it later in a different detail. But but what it really is, is it's moisture. Right. So what you could do is you take that picture and it'll show that aura around, say, you or but but a finger is the best way to do it. Because if you take a picture of your finger and you have that aura and then all of a sudden you just wipe your hand off with a towel and take a picture, take a picture. It's it's gone. gone. Yeah. Because what is that aura is the moisture that's coming off your body. Right. Like steam. And she made a whole living out of this because people didn't realize that it was moisture. This is where, again, I'll beat up science just as much as I beat up all this other stuff. I mean, because how hard was it to wipe your finger and take a picture? 
Yeah, you know, or let wipe me take her a down, picture, or, take you know, another picture. Yeah, you know, no, don't do that. Just oh stay. my gosh, look at how yeah. gifted she is. No, oh my gosh, her aura is amazing. <laughs> exactly, and that's where like these scientists that were beating up Ed and Lorraine saying, well, they were only stuck in their faith and they had tunnel vision. It's like, you guys... Well, these guys are stuck in their tunnel vision too. Yeah, you got your tunnel vision too. And she led that that lab, that area for, for a long time. You know, so now, we- of course, the guys that did, I guarantee this, if you were to talk to like Steve Novell and Perry DeAngelis that were critiquing yeah. the Warrens, they would say that she's a crackpot too. Right, I, of you course. Know, I Everybody mean, is. Yeah. But... I remember watching it. I don't remember whether it was an interview or not or a documentary. Mm-hmm. And they were in the Warren's home and Lorraine had chickens in the kitchen. Freaking chickens. Yeah. And she had a cage for them. Yeah. Because hey, people got you chickens know, in her house. All right. You know, whatever. But you're just looking at her going. She's batshit crazy. Well, let's be honest here. But I mean, I'm go- I'm also going to say this. She was old. Like yeah. she was like late 80s. Well, no, and they even say like in her her like uh mid to late 80s and into the 90s her faculties were going. And that's where she had all this legal representation right. and things like that because she couldn't she, take care well, of it. Well, yeah, she was just aging. But this gets back to what I say all the time. Out of 100% of all these things, at best, 10% of them are true. Right. But still. No, I know. But when, all right, let's talk about you have 800 cases that you've done or 1,000 cases and you're doing your 10%. It's just a small handful. Yeah. It's not many. No. And the problem is, is when people start jabbing fingers into your, your work or whatever. Yeah. And you only have this 10% rate of things that happen. They're not going to focus on that 10%. No, they're going to focus on the 90 other stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's like if you were an, if I was an asshole for 10 years, right. But I had one good year. Yeah. You're not going to pay attention to that one good year. No, you're not. No, it's the nine years of asshole, you know, that, you know, assholeness, assholeness, you know, that, that you're going to focus on and rightfully so. Yeah. But in this case, that's where, Again, I'll say it all the time. Just get it on film. Get on evidence. Get and get some evidence it. on this stuff. Submit and it. Let it be let it go through testing. Like if you've got it on film, let them analyze the film. Yeah. Yeah. If and you've got no, something, but here's the let other them thing. analyze the But sample. here's the other thing too. These people that have these stories and they want like a demonologist there or they want a, a priest yeah. and all that stuff. Call scientists over. Yeah. You know, like in, in that case, that's me, the skeptic talking. All right, you had the Warrens and all that stuff. Why don't you go to the like school and have the, the school science teacher come? Yeah. And if he saw something, he would connect, you know, because obviously the school science teacher's got to know somebody at either like a university or something like that. Get him involved in that type of stuff. You mean to tell me that if you were just a scientist, you're grading shitty papers and... You're, where you're a you science be, teacher and, where you could and be somebody walks up rocks falling. From yeah. The somebody sky. walks up and says, look, man, my house shit flies all around it and it's raining rocks right now. Do you want to come over. check that out? They're going to send, they're going to set the papers down Yeah, and they're going to check it out. <laughs> Field trip. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and, and that's where, that's where I, 
I do start dissecting some of this stuff. It's like, why didn't they call someone like that? But then I also understand too that when you're under stress and duress, you don't think clearly and yeah. you don't do things that you would well, normally like do. Mr. Beckford, he didn't think that was what was wrong with his he literally thought his house was being vandalized. Yeah. Or but, that there was something wrong with the pipes. But what was and the timeline then, on that? Like two months? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm sorry, but you're believing that for about two weeks. Yeah. And then there's a good solid month, month and a half. where, And then he's like, well, what's a priest going to do for me? Yeah. Well. Surprise. Yeah. I don't know. I'd be different. I'd be calling. I'd be calling people over. Oh, day one. Yeah. But also I get the time era too. You don't want people thinking you're crazy. Yeah. You don't want, you know, and that's what I was talking to you offline about this. It's like you have families like you and I, we don't have kids, but if you had, you know, they had children. Yeah. And they're going to be that crazy house down the road. And none of their, none of the families are going to let their kids play with their kids. And right. So I get that whole dynamic where people will try to be reserved and quiet and try to fix it on their own and mind their P's and Q's. Cause. Well, and I'm also going to say this, it specifically states in these negative hauntings, mm-hmm. you know, if you've got remotely, poltergeist type activity it's going to feed off of oh yeah your your fear your anxiety Mm -hmm. and the whole fact that it's happening is going to cause you to be fearful and anxious yeah which is it's just going to be a vicious cycle Mm -hmm. and you're going to keep feeding it but i think with the warrens that's where i think there's a lot of layers to that onion Mm -hmm. and like you have a story like that but if if brittle got that off of ed and lorraine and it's just there you know they said this is what happened i will say this i did try to find yeah this case but here's the other thing they a lot of times they change the family's name no i know so i was unable to find yeah verification but what i'm saying is if he if this this was just them saying this is what happened and brittle didn't get to see any thing on there then you know he's just trying to win off a story well it's, i mean they it's, did it again goes back to the scientists the saying photos. it's a fishing tale now yeah. if they have photos or they have they you know something and that's the other thing is you know this time i mean like cameras weren't that great you had eight millimeter film and you know it just wasn't I know, it wasn't but that hot, again but, i'm going to post all the photos should, that i that they yeah. have for this or at least the ones that are relevant for yeah, this particular on case group. on the Facebook group. And you can take a look at them and you can decide yeah. for yourself. No, definitely. And that's the only reason why I was like, I'm going to include it. Mm-hmm. Well, that and I mean, come on. It but pretty they, much encompasses our last four episodes. So it's like we were like doing this on Oh, purpose. yeah. No, no. <laughs> and we weren't doing it on purpose. No, we weren't. We just got really lucky. Yeah. But... That story and it ha- say it has supporting evidence or whatever story it were to pump out. Then the problem is, is you have like the Amityville horror where she didn't even set foot in the house and she well, took it to the did, grave. That's something going on. But it was after and, the Lutzes had left. No, that's what I mean by not setting foot in the house. It's like, you know, they weren't there. And then, of course, you got everybody coming out of the Lutzes saying, yeah, no, it was, you know, we. Um, we made it up. We made it up. Now you're going to sit there and say what happened to the, you know, the way I read it and all the books and stories that she said, what happened to the Lutzes were, was real. Yeah. 
but yet they're coming out and saying it's fake. And again, this is where it's that he said, she said thing. And if I'm going to slice it in the middle, maybe all of them just said, look, the town thinks we're nuts. Mm -hmm. Let's just say, had a little little group huddle. Let's just say we made it up and move on with our lives. Get a nice house in Reseda. Yeah. Well, the sun does claim everything. Yeah. The sun still hangs on to it. Says. Yeah. He's got a documentary, My Amityville Horror. So if you're interested, check it out. Yep. But a little sloppy, we got through it. (laughs) Because The Warrens is a sloppy story. Yeah, I mean, it's not neat and tidy. There are no bows. Yeah, and we didn't want to just do one perspective. I think every perspective needed to be Uh, put through there. And and like I said, I, I just find it interesting that the conjuring money starts coming out and then all, and these all of a people sudden there's all of start this fucking coming out of the woodwork. You know, yeah. it's, you gotta have that suspect, but we are taking a drastic turn. We are in content and we are both excited for this. I'm so excited. The next topic next week is drum roll, please. Vlad the Impaler. Yes. Vlad Dracul himself. Yes, yes. We're going back to what we would call the oldie stuff that we started the episode with. He was number one on my original list. Yes, I'm yes. just saying. And, so uh, pretty excited. We're very excited to uh, to get back into those uh, older story topics uh, and and get right into the hooks of it. Yeah. Also, some great news with this specific episode is number 10 for us 10 episodes we made it yes yes i think they (laughs) i don't know they they said something and uh i was reading something somewhere where i think it's something like 50 percent of podcasters or whatever bounce out like they never make it to 10 episodes i think that's changed now because oh yeah people got a lot of time on their hands yeah and i mean what else are you gonna do yeah i mean i would love it if we could do this full-time but oh my gosh but we have two full-time jobs yeah can i just tell you to <laughs> fit more. in the reading time yeah. and then the writing it up yeah uh it's it's like being in school yep. again it's like working and going to school and for those of you that but are there's new, no degree at the end yeah for those of you that are new thanks for coming thanks for listening to us yeah uh we see you all piling in we see the downloads rising. Uh, I hope you're sticking around for us and not just giving a little peek and, and t- you know, running away. But, but I mean, I wouldn't blame you if you yeah, did. No, no. I, uh, we're very happy that this is our 10th uh, episode, and we are a very, we're not considered celebrities or famous. No, we're, we're, we're a little a, mom and pop. We're a little mom and pop. We're the little podcast that could. I'm still not done with the studio yet. We're still in the dining room. We're still in the dining room. And our dog is our creative director. Yes, Dean so, Winchester. I, mean, I think that's, and and our cat is HR. Misty. So, I mean, yeah. you can direct your complaints to her, but I yeah. can't guarantee and this that is where they're like, one, she's going to read it, or two, she's going to address yeah. it. Yeah. There, there probably will be no calls to action. <laughs> no, no. Neither, they're both pretty, uh, they're pretty slack on their duties. I mean, I don't blame him. No, no. I mean, so any uh, any additional uh, announcements? Denims? No, no, no. That's it. Okay. Well, everybody, thanks for uh, checking into us again, and we will see you next week with Vlad the Impaler. We will, 
And as always, make good choices. Take care. <laughs>